0: Well, uh, as we've been saying each week, Paul had come to Corinth, this Greek town, to start uh, on a missionary journey, and he starts a Bible study. Now, when you think of of Corinth, uh, let me just show you a picture here. You'll notice that Paul's on a missionary journey, and if you've traveled through the book of Acts, you'll know he goes to Philippi up in the top there in Thessalonica, Berea, and he comes down the coast, and he finds his way over to Athens. But down in the bottom left-hand corner, there's this town of Corinth. And one of, the things, one of the things that you notice about Corinth is you have these two bodies of water that come together. And there's this isthmus, isthmus that uh, a four-mile stretch of land that um, connects those two bodies of water, that, that separates those two bodies of water. And so what they would do is they'd have all the ships that were coming down from Rome, they would sail into Corinth, and they had constructed a road that went right across the four miles of land there and they would take the boats, the ships, out of the water and then take them to the other body of water, again, four miles. took some time, but they would do that. But that saved them from having to sail over 250 miles through some very, very treacherous water. And if you were to look at that today, today they've created a, a, a canal that goes across, but it used to be they would take the ships out of the water and it would go over a paved road all the way to the other side. Now, because of that, There were a lot of sailors that would come into town, lots of merchants, and this town became very, very wealthy because of the trade that was going on there. But also, it was also a place of a number of temples. So you have a lot of people coming in, lots of money. And uh, one of the, the main temple there was the temple of the goddess of Aphrodite. Let me show you her picture. I'm only going to show you the headshot because uh, anytime there's a statue of Aphrodite, because she's the goddess of love and sex, uh, well, it's just best let's show you a headshot today. But the way that they worshiped Aphrodite there in Corinth is every night from the temple, they would send out a thousand temple prostitutes and they would go out into the town and uh they would solicit and then the money that from that would come back to the temple which is how how they uh kept the thing going so um because of that this would become a very you and I would look on at the culture and we would say it's a very immoral culture even even by today's standards we would look at that and uh, one commentator as he talks about First Corinthians, he likes to refer to it as First Californians. And the reason he refers to it in that way is the same things that you and I face today, the same culture that you and I live in, is very similar to the culture that they had. Uh, One of the things that was very rampant in that society was sexually transmitted diseases. Do you know that right now there are 110 million Americans with a sexually transmitted disease? I mean, it's, 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 and it grows by 20 million a year, 20 million a year. I read that this morning. So here in our country, we have um, the same sexual situation. We have pornography and we have strip clubs and we have websites. And uh, recently we found out that there's a website called Ashley Madison, where people thought that their information was secure and found out that it was not quite as secure as they, they thought. So we live in that same kind of society. So the question today is, how does the church respond by being immersed in that kind of society? And even more important, what happens when the immorality of the world creeps into the church? How is it that we as a church are to respond to that? So today's going to be a very, very fast Bible study just because we're limited on time. And uh, we're going to go through the 13 verses here. We're also going to uh, take this a little bit more in depth when we get into chapter 6, so uh, we'll move kind of fast as we travel through. So I'm going to pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 5. Paul is writing a letter to this church of Corinth that he had started several years before, and uh, it goes like this. If you want to have your pen in, in hand, he says, it's actually reported that there is immorality, underline that, among you, and immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles. So whatever's going on, even the Gentiles wouldn't do that. What's going on? Underline this, that someone has his father's wife, that someone has his father's wife. So there's, there's a couple of things that we need to, to deal with as we unpack this today. First of all, there's immorality, but that immorality has crept into the church. When you read the word immorality there in your Bible, the Greek word is porneia, And I put that there in your outline. It means it can be translated as harlotry, which would be prostitution, adultery, incest, fornication. But for our purposes, uh, we'll we'll just define it like this. Immorality, and you want to write this down, is any sexual activity outside of marriage. Any sexual activity outside of marriage. You'll find in the Bible, and again, we're going to talk about this at great length in uh, chapter 6, but in the Bible, there are some very, very strong statements about sex and, and that relationship. For instance, Jesus would say on the, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says there in your outline, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So from God's perspective, he sets the standard very, very high, very high. And then in uh, 1 Thessalonians, Paul will say, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. This is something that's not to be part of the, the life or lifestyle of the believer. So the big question is, so what's the big deal about sex? I mean, why, why is it such, a, such, a, such an issue? And why does Paul write about it so much? Apparently, the, the culture that Paul wrote to in several of his books uh, struggled with the same issue, sexual immorality. The world tells us that sex is just a physical act, which is why the world will tell you that for your 13-year-old, just give them the right protection to make sure they don't get pregnant and they don't get diseases. Because the world sees it as a physical act. I remember when I was in, in college and I went to a Christian college, the dean of students came in and spoke. He would always be the one to come speak about sex. And he gathered us all together and he talked about the, the sexual relationship. And he says, it's okay to explore and to experiment. Uh, the only thing that you want to do is you want to make sure that you save, you know, the big deed for, for marriage. So you don't do that. So when you're 19 and in college, that's the message that you're looking for. That, that was a joke. That was a joke. <laughs> now, I will tell you this, that that dean did spend after that five years in prison because he was molesting children in his office. So his... his uh, Wisdom was not all that sound, not all that sound. And, and you know the, the, they would say it's just a physical act. Well, the Bible says that it's not just a physical act. As a matter of fact, God designed the sexual relationship, and He designed it to be something that would be a blessing. But in the design, He He said, "Here's how it works best." There in your outline, He says, "For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one." Flesh. So in God's design, the first person that you're to be with is, is your your husband or your wife. You come together, and the Bible says you become one flesh. Now, growing up, I was taught that becoming one flesh meant two people come together, they create a baby, so their two fleshes, you might say, create one flesh. And so I thought that's what that meant. That's not what the Bible's talking about when it talks about one flesh. When the Bible talks about one flesh, as a matter of fact, in the next chapter, Chapter 6, Paul's going to describe it like this, there in your outline. He says, Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. So the idea is that when two people come together in a sexual relationship, from the Bible's perspective, that is one flesh. We're going to talk about that more when we get to chapter 6 what the Bible has to say about that. But we're going to stick with chapter five today because this is not just a becoming one flesh. There's something going on here that's so far beyond that even the unbelievers, the Gentiles, the the pagans, they wouldn't even do that. This person's doing something and he's bringing it into the church. So um, we're going to pick it up. Well, first of all, in verse one, he says, he says, it's actually reported that there's immorality among you, and immorality is such a kind that does not exist even among the Gentiles. You might expect it there, but but, it, but even there, that someone has his father's wife. Now, there's a, there's a few things that we have to unpack, and then the, the rest will go fairly fast. When it says that he has his father's wife, has his father's wife, the idea is he is currently having his father's wife. It would imply that the father is alive because it's not his father's past wife in the sense that he's passed on, but he's alive and this man has his father's wife. Some, very, very few people would say it's a polite way of saying that he's having some type of relationship with his mom. Most people don't hold that and uh, I would not hold that either. If that were so, it would already been on Jerry Springer and we'd already have known. Some suggest that he's having a relationship with a stepmom, and that's a possibility. Probably what's most likely going on here is that in that culture, it would not be uncommon for a man to have more than one wife. And so there are times where as the man would get older, he would choose younger and younger wives. And so many hold that what's taking place here is that the father is older now he has a much younger wife, probably even younger than the son. And it would sound very strange in our culture, but if you were to go to some Middle Eastern cultures, you would see that that would be even common today. So the wife could be younger than the son, and uh, he finds her attractive, and she's apparently agreeable. And so they're in this ongoing active relationship. So when he says it's actually reported, the idea is that there's a buzz around town. Everybody in the church knows about it. It's been reported. Paul hears about it. He's in another town. And Paul's upset about it. He's ballistic. He's ballistic. When it says that he has his father's wife, it's also important that we understand. I want you to write this down. It's not speaking of an incident, but a lifestyle. Has his father's wife. It's ongoing. It's ongoing. This is living in significant immorality, uh, not somebody who went too far, crossed the line. This is somebody who's actively in this relationship. They are not repentant. Also important in this is that Paul never says that this guy is a non-believer or that he's lost his salvation or that he's not saved. Paul never says that. Uh, Paul's going to deal with this man because he is a believer. Paul will not deal with the woman involved in the relationship. He will not deal with the the man's father uh, in in any way because they are apparently not believers and they are not part of the church. So the only person that Paul is going to deal with is the man who's part of the church who is a believer. What bothers Paul the most in this, he's bothered that the man is doing this, but what really bothers Paul the most is that the church seems to be okay with what's going on. Paul says in verse two, he says, you've become arrogant and have not mourned. You should be mourning over this, but instead you've become arrogant. Now, how many of your Bibles say you've become um, arrogant? Okay, and how many of your Bibles say you've become puffed up? And then some of your Bibles say you've become prideful. Okay, now here's what's going on. They thought that this was a good thing, that this person was in their church. It was their way of saying, Look how accepting and how tolerant we are of everybody who comes into our church. That, that we just, This is just such a great thing. They thought that tolerance was a good thing. There are some things that if we tolerate in church, now the world's going to do what the world does, but when we tolerate those things inside the church, it's actually something that would be offensive to God. And Paul's going to deal with that today. This was destroying the reputation of the church. It was destroying the reputation of God. And Paul says, you need to get rid of this guy and uh, not let him teach a home fellowship or something like that. One, one, commentator wrote, um, one commentator wrote on this, he says, that hell is the only place of complete acceptance where it makes no demands, come as you are, stay as you are. However, as a believer, God accepts you as you are but loves you enough not to let you stay where you are. Sadly for this man, he was a believer. He was staying where he was. He was not growing. He was not renouncing. And they were accepting and nobody's doing anything about it. So the guy is in immorality. He doesn't want to repent. Uh, They want to accept him. So what do you do? How do you handle that situation? Well, Paul says in verse three, he says, for I, on my part, though absent in body, Paul's in another town, but present in the Lord, have already, what's that word? I want you to underline that word, judged. How many of you have ever been told that Christians shouldn't judge anybody? Well, Paul just judged somebody right here. I've already judged him and, and has, who has committed this and, and as though I were present. What I love about Paul is Paul's in another town. He hears what's going on. And uh, you know, we might say, well, you don't know me. You don't know what I'm going through. You don't know why. But for, for Paul, none of that matters. The only thing that matters for Paul is, did you do this? Are you doing this? Are you involved in this relationship? So Paul says, I've already judged him. So what do, you, what do we do? Well, verse four, he says, in the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, that is when the church comes together as a congregation, underline that, and I'm with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So Paul says, here's what you're to do. When the church comes together as a congregation, you you need to deal with this. So I I think it's important now for us as a congregation just to to get a feel for for what actually happened here on, on that particular Sunday, and uh, where, where they, they did this. And so what I've done is I've written down a list of names here in the congregation. And at the end of the service, I'm going to call you up and then we'll just give everybody. You, you know what? You didn't laugh because you were nervous. <laughs> Verse five, he says, I've decided to deliver, one, uh, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that the spirit, his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, when it says the destruction of his flesh, I'm going to, um, most commentators would say, it's not that we, we're going to kick him out so we can go get a, a disease and then rot. That's not the idea. The goal is always for restoration. So when he says we're going to send the guy out, the, the idea is go do what you want to do. Go do it. Just can't do it here. And hopefully what's going to happen is that this person's going to go outside of the fellowship. As he goes outside of the fellowship and he pursues that, he's going to become miserable to the place where he he wants to come back, where he repents. And uh, for, for many of us, the way that we came to the Lord, as there was a time where we got so sick of our sin, we were so miserable and it, that, that we, we came to the Lord, and God used that. Now, don't raise your hand, but we, we all know that it was either us or, or somebody we know. In my story, I got saved when I was five years old. So it wasn't that I was miserable in my sin, you might say. At least I didn't, I don't think so. But I, I was saved when I was five, and I grew up in the church. So here's what I can tell you. I didn't come to the Lord uh, because I was so sick in my sin, but there were a couple of times early on where I came back to the Lord, because I was so miserable in my sin. Anybody ever been there? You know, you as a believer, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you and you step out and you go and begin to live a life that you know that God's not called you to live. And the Holy Spirit never shuts up. And and you go to these places and everybody else is having a wonderful time and you're there and you're just miserable. All right, am I alone in this? And, and so we we've all been there, and, and the reason is, we're, and we become, and we just know we have to go back. We have to go back, and so we, we we've been there. So the idea is that if we put this guy out, he's going to become miserable in his sin, which is going to lead him to repentance, and he comes comes back. Now the the difference between two thousand years ago and today is in Corinth, there was one church. And so when we've had the few occasions where we've had to sit somebody down and we've talked to them say, hey, you've got to stop this. They won't repent. Won't repent. And then we put them out of, out of the church. You just can't come here anymore because you're, you know, you're doing this weird thing and it's really weird and you got to go. They just go down the street. We never hear from them and they join another church and become a deacon. So it just, just kind of <laughs> happens. So they, they take Paul's advice and they, they say church comes together. And I'm assuming they, they talked to him before the church came together and he probably didn't even come to the service. He just stepped out. We don't, we don't know. But here's what happened. They, they do take action. They say, you can't be here anymore if you're going to live that lifestyle and you will not repent. So he leaves. He leaves. And, uh, one of the things that we're going to find is that it works in his life. We're in 1 Corinthians. When we come to the second book, 2 Corinthians, we're going to find that, that Paul has to write the church back on behalf of this guy. Notice what it says there in your outline. He says, sufficient for such a one is the punishment which was inflicted by the majority so that on the contrary you would rather forgive him and comfort him. Otherwise such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore I urge you to reaffirm, reaffirm your love for him. So here, here's what's going on. The guy's in gross immorality, gross by meaning large scale immorality, and nobody's doing anything. So Paul writes, and says you got to do something. So they finally take action. He goes. And then he repents and he wants to come back. And now they won't let him come back. So then Paul has to write again and say, okay, now, now you've got to let him back. So they kind of overcorrected on, on both ends. Verse six, he says, your boasting is not good. Now here's what they were doing in their boasting. They were boasting over the fact that they were so accepting of everybody in the congregation, no matter what they were doing, we just love, 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 look how accepting we are. Paul says, that's not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. One of the things that you find about leaven, leaven is, is uh, also called yeast, and uh, it's always in the Bible a metaphor or a picture of sin. And one of the things that you find is if you take a little bit of yeast, a little bit of leaven, you put it in a piece of bread, it has a way of permeating through the whole loaf. Paul's point here is that if you don't deal with this, it's going to permeate the whole church. So I want you to write this down. A little sin works through the church. So you have sin you have leaven or, or yeast, and that's the picture, and, and it's a lot like cancer. It's a lot like cancer. The, the thing with cancer is it's never content to stay in one place. It always wants to expand. It, it, it never enjoys being quarantined. It just wants to continue to expand. So then Paul gives an illustration that this church was very familiar with. Verse 7, he says, you have to clean out the old leaven, underline that, so that you may be a new lump, that is get rid of the sin, just in fact you are unleavened that is you're not supposed to have that in your in your church for Christ our passover underline that has also been sacrificed therefore let us celebrate the feast not with the old leaven nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth so so Paul writes to them and he tells them he reminds them of a story that they were familiar with. He talks about Christ, our Passover. When the nation of Israel was in Egypt, they were slaves and uh, they were hopeless in their situation. They needed someone to step in and rescue them, to save them. So God says, here's how I'm going to rescue you. Here's how I'm going to save you. And it's called the Passover. So what they did was they would take a lamb and they, they took the lamb, the lamb was killed. And of course, the lamb is a picture of Jesus who would do the same thing in the future. They take the blood of the lamb and they take a hyssop branch and they would go on, this, on the day of the Passover on this where God saved them. They take the blood of the lamb and they put it on top of the doorpost like this and then they, on the two sides. So it literally would create the picture of a cross on the door. So on that first Passover, because they had the blood covering on the door, the angel comes through Egypt on that night And he looks down, and all the houses that were covered by the blood, as he comes for judgment, he passes over that house in judgment. Those houses that did not have the blood covering on the door, those houses were judged. And you know the story about how God freed the nation of Israel, and it involved the killing of the firstborn of all the Egyptians who rejected the blood covering. It's also interesting or important to say those inside were not saved because they were good, led good lives or anything like that. They were saved for one reason and one reason only. They accepted the blood of the Passover lamb on the door. And so when the Lord looks down, he sees that he passes over in judgment. It's a picture of what Jesus would do in the future. But then he says, let us celebrate the feast. That feast of Passover is uh, the, the next day, they begin what's called the feast of unleavened bread. Leaven is always a picture of sin in the Bible. So you have the Passover, which is where you're saved, and then you celebrate the feast of unleavened bread. What they would do then is they would go through the house and they would find any yeast or leaven and they would take that out of the house. They'd actually play a game where the mom would hide a little yeast or leaven somewhere in the house and the kids would go through and they would search and then they would find that and they'd get it out of the house for seven days. So the idea is you responded to the Passover being saved by getting rid of the yeast, that is the sin, and that's how you responded to that. So you want to write this down. And hopefully I made that at least reasonably clear. We are not to celebrate our salvation, which is Christ our Passover, by hanging on to the old lifestyle, which would be the old leaven. So far, so good? Verse nine, he goes on and he says, now I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. It's important also, we won't spend a lot of time on it, but it says, I wrote you in my letter. Paul had written another letter to this church uh, previous to this letter. It doesn't make it into the Bible, but they were familiar with it. And Paul wrote them and he says, you're not to associate with immoral people. Immoral people in Paul's eyes were not people who struggled or stumbled, but those were people who were habitually unrepentant. And uh, the church at this point, when Paul said, you're not to associate with immoral people, they didn't understand that he was talking about immoral people in the church. So what they did was they responded by not associating with anybody in the world, people who'd be immoral in the world, but they were allowing immoral people to stay in the church in good standing and not dealing with that. Verse 10, it goes on and he says, I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with the idolaters Uh, For then you'd have to go out of the world. Uh, Verse 11, but actually I wrote you not to associate with any so-called brother if he's an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or reviler or drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. In ancient cultures, when you ate with somebody, that meant that you were in agreement. So you would have fellowship with somebody if if you were eating with them. And if you weren't in agreement with somebody, you would not eat with them. Here in America, if the food is free, we'll eat with anybody. But in that culture, <laughs> it was very, very different, very, very different. And, and, and so Paul says, if they are living an immoral life as a believer, they claim to be a believer, you need to not have fellowship with them at all. Typically in the church, we just want to love, 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 and never take a stand and say, as a believer, I cannot have fellowship with you anymore. And uh, sadly, uh, we, we kind of do the opposite of what Paul was saying. So um, one of the things that we get out of that, and I want you to write this down, we, we, we don't get upset with the world for acting like the world. So there on your outline, it says, we don't protest the world for acting like the world. Many times in the church, and I think within the political process, what we will see is we as Christians are quick to petition we're, we're quick to accuse, and uh, we, we accuse the world for acting like the world. The world's going to do what the world does. They're the world. They're non-believers, non-believers. You can't be upset that they don't act like believers. Do you know this? You can't be upset about that. We're upset with the world because they act like the world, but then we come to church and we sit two seats down or one pew over from somebody that we know is living in, in some form of immorality, and we don't say anything. Paul says, you've got it completely backwards. The world does what they do. You need to deal with it in the church. Make sense? In, in that day, when the church came together, he says, don't eat with them. One of the things that Paul is referring to, and we'll talk about this later on in Corinthians, but when the church came together on a weekly basis, they would have a large potluck dinner. So everybody would bring what they have. And in the midst of that potluck dinner, they would serve communion. That would just be part of the meal. So Paul says, don't even let them come to that meal is the idea. Verse um, 12 and 13, he says, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Underline that. Do you not judge those who are within the church? The idea is, yes, we do. But those who are outside, God judges. And then he says, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. How many of your Bibles, when it says, remove the wicked man from among yourselves, it's all in capital letters. Like, Paul's making this really strong point, and that's the reason that it's there. Sadly, some of your Bibles don't have that, but uh, Paul's making a very, very strong point there. The, um, the, uh, we have been told in the church to, to not judge. Uh, one commentator said that for every 20-year-old smoking pot, he knows two verses. The first verse comes from Genesis where it says, every seed-bearing plant that God created is good. And then the other one is do not judge. Those are the two verses that they all know. So that do not judge comes from a certain passage. I want to show you something about this passage that you've probably never seen before. We've all heard that Christians aren't to judge. And uh, so, so notice this. Jesus is speaking. It's in the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus says, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with your measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? So the idea is, you know, you need to deal with your own stuff. He's not saying don't judge. He's just saying before you judge somebody else, make sure that you're not dealing with the same issue. It's easy to look at somebody else's sin. You know, when you sin, I think God needs to bring judgment. When I sin, well, it's grace. You know, so we we tend to look at each other's sin in, in, in that way. So he says, do not judge. But you know the very next thing that Jesus says? and most Christians miss this. The very next thing that Jesus says there in your outline, he says, do not give dogs what is sacred and do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you to shreds or tear you to pieces. So it's interesting that Jesus says, now listen, you don't want to judge for in the same way that you judge, you will be judged. So you need to make sure that you're not involved in the same thing, being accusing of other people when you've got the plank in your eye. But then he turns around, and the very next thing that he says is sometimes you got to give some judgment. you got to determine whether somebody's a dog or whether they're a pig. Do you find that interesting? How many of you never heard that before? Good, three of us. Good, that's good. So, so here's the idea. When Jesus says, don't judge, Uh, make sure that you're not doing the same thing. But he's not saying you can't ever judge because the very next phrase that he uses, you need to make a judgment call. So we need to make a judgment call. So here's, here's the point that Paul is making. Write this down. Judging those outside the church is God's responsibility. We tend to reverse that. Judging those inside the church is our responsibility. It's our responsibility. We as believers tend to judge everybody outside the church but we misjudging inside the church. So how do we handle this here at Calvary? We're going to just talk about this for a very quick moment and then we'll be done. We'll drill down more when we get to chapter six. Did you find that at least interesting today? Good, 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 good. Um, Remember that this man is doing something in that culture that's so unthinkable that even the Gentiles, the non-believers, wouldn't do it. So this is an extreme situation. This is not just a casual stumbling. He's unrepentant as the story begins. What we find here at Calvary is that most believers want to do the right thing. You want to do the right thing. And, and when you blow it, you, you feel terrible. And so um, there are times when a believer, and this is speaking specifically of a moral issue, there are times when a believer will go outside the bounds that God has set. Whether tricked, whether lured, whatever, you know, whatever it is, and they find themselves there. Typically, that believer feels miserable the entire time. When we as a church hear of it, we always, we always, when we hear of it, we will always um, confront it when we hear. Typically, what happens is the person will repent. And when they do, there's, there's always grace, there's mercy, and a restoration to fellowship. And that's, that's the, you know, the goal. Every once in a while, there's somebody who says, this is what I'm doing. God has to accept it It's just how it is. We've had a few times in our history where we've had to step in and say, this is what you're doing. Here's what the Bible says. This is not a minor thing. You've really stepped outside the bounds of what God says. So here's the deal. You can't come here anymore until you repent. Uh, One case, which happened more than a decade ago, there was a man who was coming to our church. He was married. His wife did not attend our church. And he would meet single women here within the congregation. And uh, there were a a couple of affairs that he had. So we sat him down. We talked to him the first time. He repented. The second time, uh, you know, it was, oh, I'm so sorry. But wait, we have a pattern here. So we said, okay, you've got to go you can't be here for at least six months until you know you work this out in your life. Because being here, you're, we know that you're going to find somebody, and you're going to want to counsel them, and uh, it's going to lead to something else. Because there's a pattern. Makes sense. And uh, again, the difference between here and two thousand years ago, we don't see the guy for five years. Come to find out, he's gone to another church and is doing the same thing. We don't hear where they go, and you know that that kind of happens. So. We'll ask people at times to step down from serving if they've been involved in an immoral relationship and let there be a time of healing and restoration. But within the congregation, within the congregation, when we know about it, we have to step in and we have to talk about it. We have to say this this is what the Bible says. And if you're a believer, and, and again, this situation that we're talking about today is so bad that even the Gentiles wouldn't do that. So that's uh, it's not a casual crossing a line, or I shouldn't say casual, crossing a line. I'm going to stop right there. Aren't you glad? <laughs> and we're going to pick it up again in chapter six. I have more to say, but we're out of time. So we're going to go ahead and uh, we'll, we'll drill down more in uh, chapter six. Let me let me close in prayer. Father, thank you for this your word. Lord, I pray for each and every one of us. We live in a society where society tells us, that Christians are not to judge. But your word says, Paul says, I've already judged. We live in a society where we as Christians tend to judge the world, and yet we don't judge, especially in the areas of significant immoral issues, the people within our own congregation. And for some of us here today, we're in significant immorality And we haven't even judged ourselves, And we know what the Bible says. And if we were to be honest, our heart before you, God, is simply this. We're doing what we do. We're going to deal with it, how we deal with it. And God, you just have to accept it. Not realizing that we have placed ourselves in the role of God in our life because we're the ones calling the shots and we're telling you how it is. Not even recognizing how dangerous a position we've placed ourselves in. So my prayer, our prayer, first of all, Lord, as we consider the world around us, we know the world's going to do what they do. Help us to make sure that we're not critical for the world acting like the world, but help us to have the ability to at least confront our friends who are part of the, the body, the fellowship, who we know are in an immoral relationship to say, hey, you're a believer. You need to stop and repent. And then for some of us, Father, I pray that you help us to come to the place where once again we realize that you're God. In this relationship, and we take our orders from you, and we never tell you this is how it's going to be. You have to deal with it. Help us to see how grievous that is to you, and to the church, and to everybody who knows that we are Christians. And help us to walk out of here today representing you in a way that you would be pleased. I pray that you keep us till we meet again. It's in Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, amen.